You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 126. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. You've reached another Local Maximum. Thanks for listening to last week's episode on the Electoral College. This is going to be part two of that episode, basically. So uh, you're free to just listen to this one on your own, but uh, consider that it's a companion to last week's episode. I'm currently uh, down in North Carolina at a friend's house near the beach for the 4th of July. First time out, um, not first time out of the city since January, but this is really the first time I've left the city for more than a few days since January. <laughs> so uh, it's been uh, quite the lockdown in uh, in New York and uh, it's it's good to get out for a little bit. I, I drove down here. I didn't fly. I don't want to fly right now. So that was probably the longest drive I've ever done in my life. Uh, but I'm here now. And uh, it's it's exciting. It's good to be out here. And uh, it's a good thing that we have. We have a lot of topics today, but we also have a little bit of American history today among our topics. So that's kind of fitting for Independence Day. Today's episode is sponsored by Brilliant. They have fun and interactive courses to help you beef up your skills in math and science. And I definitely wanted to include them in today's episode because they have a course on logic that specifically has a section on the mathematics and the paradoxes of voting, which I'm going to cover. So if you're into this topic and you want to build some expertise, I'm going to call that out. I'm going to link specifically to that and to uh, Brilliant uh, in general. Uh, with links at localmaxradio.com slash 126, the show notes page for this episode. So let's talk more a little about the Electoral College. I used to be against the Electoral College in high school and and uh, at university. I was going to say college, but then I was like, I was talking about the Electoral College, so it's kind of weird. But okay, fine. High school and college. I was taught that the bedrock of an equal society is the one person, one vote principle. And then... I witnessed the election of 2000, and I thought, there you go. The preferences of the people and the result uh, just don't match. But I kept on learning about the issue. When I went to Yale, I watched uh, Professor Akhil Amar, who's like a famous law professor at Yale, debate uh, against the Electoral College when I was in school, and he did a very good job. But the more I looked into it, the more I realized that, um, first of all, the subject of electoral systems is much deeper rabbit hole than I ever could have imagined, um, with a lot of mathematical and social topics in the mix, sociological topics in the mix. And secondly, you know, the Electoral College serves important important purposes that uh, didn't come into play in my simplistic mental model of an election, which is just counting up of individual preferences, but that very much come up in real-world elections involving millions of people in many different situations. So there's a social dynamic to an election that is just not easy to understand. So I wanted to talk more about that today. We're going to start by meeting an actual elector, Ernie Dronenberg, who I met when I went to San Diego. He was an elector. Nobody who covers the Electoral College actually bothers to look into who these electors are. Oftentimes, it's statewide elected officials from the party. Uh, you'll meet one today along with me and hear his story. I looked into some of the ones from New York. There's obvious, like, you know, Bill Clinton was an elector for Hillary. I guess that makes sense uh, here in New York. Uh, and then I'm going to give you an overview of 
a few of the many mathematical tools used to describe elections, some of which you may or may not have heard of, and the ones that I find the most interesting. Some of these could be whole podcasts on their own, but they're concepts that uh, I think you might want to look into more. And then I'm going to talk about the reasons why the mathematical description of an election, or at least the ones that I present, don't take into account some of the dynamics that happen in the real world. And finally, uh, I am, I'll present the Electoral College as having some good properties to deal with some of these dynamics. I understand why people reject the idea of the Electoral College initially, because I did. And if you're from another country, it might not make sense. Or if you feel like you got burned on the 2016 election and may get burned again, but I'll put forth some reason why you might want to focus your energy elsewhere, if that's the case. All right, so uh, let's get into it. I want to introduce my next guest, who is currently an elected official in San Diego County. The office is assessor, recorder, and county clerk, uh, tax assessor, not where you might expect a guest on the local maximum to come from. But this man has a really interesting history in politics and business and as a tax expert. But the important fun fact today is that he was a member of the Electoral College. Ernest Dronenberg, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here, Max. All right. So you are one of the few people who have been an elector in the Electoral College. I don't think I've ever met an elector before. Well, it was nice to meet you when you dropped in to see me a while back. And uh, uh, it is a, a very few people that, that I've met even that are members of the Electoral College. It's always, it's strange to me. We do this every four years. We always talk about the presidential elections. It seems like at least the year of the election, probably two years of the election is we're always talking about the election and nobody knows who the electors are. Well, it, you know, each state draws up their own rules as to who's a member of the electoral college. That's what sort of makes it unique. You think there will be one national standard, but there isn't. So how did you become an elector? What, what state and what years? Well, in 1980, I became an elector from California. I was on Ronald Reagan's, I was the vice chairman of his statewide campaign. And um, what happens is they, at the time of the election in California, you submit, each candidate submits a list of people that he wants as his elector if he's elected. Now, I'm giving you California's approach. There are some states that do it the same way, but there are other states that don't. But we'll only deal with California right now. Sure, yeah. And so I was on his list of people. At the at time, I was an elected representative to the California State Board of Equalization. And by vote count, I was the third-ranking Republican in the state. And so it was pretty easy as a vice chairman of his statewide campaign to be on the elector list for he, uh, I talked with him and he knew where I stood. Um, we'll get to the other questions later, but that's initially, that slate of people is really who you're voting for, in essence, when you uh, have a primary election in California. Were you surprised? Were you like asked to be an elector and were you like surprised that was coming or... Uh, what did it become? Was it like part of the territory with the office you were in? It was uh, because of the ranking of the office, it was part of the territory. I was not surprised. I would have been surprised if I wasn't selected. 
and there are electors, and then there are alternate electors. And so you have uh, the electors who do the voting, but if for some reason that elector doesn't make the meeting or not able to make the meeting of the election, then they place a alternate alternate uh, elector in that person's place. Gotcha. So where where do you actually vote? Uh, I, I have no idea. You never see, it's not televised. You don't see people, uh, you don't see electors getting together in their state to vote. In my mind, I have no idea. It could either be in some grand capital rotunda or someone's living room. I, I don't know. You know, it depends on the state and how big they are and how many electors they have. In California, we met in the state capital, actually in the assembly chambers. And so there's a hundred people when you got electors and the alternates there. And so for California, it was the state capital. Yeah. So California must have been kind of like a big crowd, whereas maybe a, a small state, it could be three people. Yeah. And then depending on how they, they determine the elect, California's what's called a winner-take-all state. That means the candidate that gets the most vote gets all the electoral votes. Some states, it's a portion based on the number of votes uh, that each candidate gets against the total electors for the state. Some states even measure it by congressional district and an elector is really elected by congressional district. So they're all different. Yeah, I believe it's Maine and Nebraska does that. Uh, so the, the, the question that, that everyone wants to know, I'm, how, how much of a choice does an elector really have once, once it, it comes to that election? Because the, the, the popular election has already taken place. The state has already decided. Now, you have electors who presumably are going to vote for the candidate, but um, are they, you know, are, are they free to vote a different way? What? Let me give you my first experience yeah. uh, in 1980. I was a member of the delegation to the Republican National Convention in Detroit that year, and the caucus gets together and then determines who they're going to vote for for president at the convention. And um, then they take a vote and uh, by raise of hands, this is how they did then. And here again, you, there's nobody next to you or nobody in front of you saying how you voted. So you can vote for whom you want. But California in that election was unanimous. Reagan was a former governor. Reagan was a political leader. And so it was pretty easy at the the national country, but that was a a uh, vote that was actually counted and was an important vote that's registered. That year, I voted legally for the president four times as an elector, uh, as a member of the delegation in the primary, uh, in the general election, and as a member of the electoral college. But in the chambers, it passed out cards, and on that card was a line and you wrote in who you were voting for for president. So in, in, in the electoral college, there's no ballot. It's just a blank, there's, it's a blank sheet of paper. In California, it's a card. It's a three by five card about like, like this. And yeah. it says the, the person that I'm hereby voting for for president of the United States and you fill it in. I could have written Ernie Dronenberg. 
I would have never gotten out of the room safely. But, <laughs> but I, I, You'd be like, I, I wouldn't get out of the room safely, but I got an electoral vote. <laughs> so that's your yeah. life uh, life goal. Uh, but I voted for Ronald Reagan. And sure. um, then you voted for the vice president. I voted for George Bush. Right. It was a very competitive thing in Detroit. If you remember, the Bush and Reagan were very close. And there were rumors running around that convention that, wouldn't it be great to have uh, the former president, Ford, and Reagan on the, they call the dream team. I called it a nightmare because uh, you can't have two captains of the ship. That would have been a disaster. Yeah. All right. So last question. Uh, did your impression of the electoral college system change after you were a part of it? Uh, after I was a part of it, I probably is, was not changed in any way. But what changes is when you can see the effect of it, when you understand how the small states would be crushed, especially nowadays, if it wasn't for the Electoral College. You know, they, they need the Electoral College because this is one United States of America. And to be able to get a, a realistic consideration of their vote, we have to have an Electoral College. All right, Ernie. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. Good to see you, Max. All right. That, uh, that was pretty awesome. So I have now a lot of concepts to get into today, and I will expand upon any of them upon demand for those of you who want. So the first figure I want to bring up, the first mathematician who studied elections, is a Frenchman who was alive at the time of the American Revolution. His name was... Marquis de Condorcet, or that was his title, is uh, Nicolas de Condorcet is the name he's he's got. I'm not really an expert on his political philosophy, but I think it was kind of egalitarian, liberal, center left figure in the French Revolution. Maybe uh, it looks like, and this is just from reading the Wikipedia article, so I'm not exactly uh, going too deep here. But it looks like his disagreement with the American founders was that he was more for kind of a streamlined, unicameral legislature, sort of like a unitary democracy where we vote and we come up with a singular answer. But I could be a little wrong about that. Uh, ultimately, the French Revolution turned against him from the left, and he ended up, uh, I think he ended up dead. But he did some really interesting mathematics before that, and he... Uh, is sort of the go-to guy when you look want to look at the model of an election, the sort of social choice model of an election. Uh, and we brought him up. I definitely brought him up in the episode uh, with Alex Andorra. That was, I think, episode 98 uh, when we talk about the uh, electoral system, uh, the, and the French the French one in that case, but it wasn't. We would have brought him up probably if we were talking about any other country too, because he's just such a, a big figure when it comes to social choice theory. And in fact, his his voting system is is what we talked about. So here's his model. First of all, of what an election is, not his voting system, but his model is that each voter. So there's a there's a set list of candidates in the Condorcet model. Uh, the the candidates have already been selected. And each voter has a list of preferences. So let's say there are seven candidates. Each voter has a ranking of all seven candidates from first to last on what they would prefer. You just ask someone, do you prefer A to B? Do you prefer B to C? And so on and so forth. 
And so everyone has kind of a list. And the goal of an election system then becomes taking all of these individual rankings and turning them into group rankings. So should be pretty simple, right? You know, everyone tells you what their favorite candidate is or their rankings of all the candidates and you kind of add up the results. But the problem is that this often leads to strategic voting. So for example, um, if you do first, let's say we do first past the post, kind of like what we do uh, in American elections and, and many elections around the world. It's just whoever gets the most votes uh, gets is, is elected. Uh, obviously, we don't do that for president, but we do that for other offices. And so what happens is that if you have two elections, if you have two candidates, then it's fine because, you know, whoever gets the most votes uh, has more than 50%. You know, whoever's preferred by the group is preferred, uh, you know, is, is wins the election. But suppose you have three candidates and suppose that two of those candidates are actually very similar and they split the vote. So they end up splitting the vote among themselves. And then that third candidate gets in and wins when really uh, most of the people voting would have preferred one of those first two candidates. That's kind of known as the spoiler effect. And so the question is, can you have an election where there isn't a, a spoiler effect? Um, and it's actually, it turns out it's, it's really hard to, to do that. So, uh, there's something called the Condorcet method, uh, which is the idea that you get everybody's full ranking of their top, uh, you know, their, their their first choice all the way down to their last choice, and then you look for the candidate that would beat every other candidate in a head-to-head matchup, and you say, well, okay, if let's say it's candidate A. A would beat B in a matchup head-to-head. Uh, so a majority prefers A to B. A majority prefers A to C. And between B and C, someone wins, but it doesn't matter because A beats everybody. So then uh, the thought is that A should win the election. And that's actually uh, – there, there are very few times when this is actually seriously proposed as an – electoral system, which is really interesting. Um, but one of the things that could happen is you could end up with a Condorcet cycle, which means that A prefers B, A, a beats B, B beats C, and C beats A. And so then there's a question of, you know, what do you do in that case? And so I don't know if that would be particularly common, um, but it, there are definitely times in, in history, at least in, in Congresses that we see where this would have happened. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's um that's that's his method of voting and um there there could be like a complicated uh system for breaking a tie but it would be very rare. Um so let's talk about Arrow's impossibility theorem next which is in 1950 by the economist Kenneth Arrow. He was his his dates are 1921 to 2017. And he showed that there is no perfect voting system. And what that means is that there's no voting system that, and to simplify, uh, uh, has these three characteristics. One, it has to be non-dictatorship, which means it's not one person calling all the shots. That's kind of obvious. Two, uh, there can't be an unanimity, which means if everybody prefers candidate A over candidate B, then the group has to prefer candidate A over candidate B. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. But the third uh, the, the third requirement 
that's the one that, that gets stuck a lot of the times is the kind of no spoilers requirement is that if an uh, alternative, if the group prefers A to B and then some irrelevant candidate C comes into the race and then all of a sudden the group prefers B to A just because C is there, then that doesn't make sense. So there shouldn't be uh, the an irrelevant alternative existing or not shouldn't uh, affect the group preference between uh, two candidates. It turns out that, well, that's obviously not true in the system that we have now. And it turns out that uh, that can't be true in any system unless you have a dictatorship or, you know, or you break unanimity or something. So that's really interesting uh, result because um, it turns out that it's impossible to have an election, an electoral system with all of the properties that uh, we would want. And so there will always be some degree of strategic voting and not just strategic voting, but strategic candidate selection. So you can have, I mean, <laughs> the news this week is that Kanye West is getting into the presidential race. Now, look, if I had to make a prediction, I don't think he's actually going to be in, in the race. But the uh, speculation is that he will take away from one candidate over the other. Maybe he's in league with one of the candidates to try to hurt the other candidate, something like that. Um where, you know, shouldn't affect the voters' choice between Trump and Biden just having this candidate there. But uh, but the, the thought is that maybe it does. So uh, that's, uh, that's the problem with irrelevant alternatives. Um, so the fact is, so, so I think that uh, con- the, the Condorcet methods are the best. Uh, they kind of reduce in terms of reducing strategic voting because there'll only be a problem if there, there is a cycle. And then you're left with, um, if you want to find a spoiler candidate, you're kind of left with having to find a candidate that would create one of those cycles, which in most cases I think is very difficult to do. And that's why that method is kind of the most robust, but uh, it, it's not perfect. And so the takeaway is to me is that, you know, we shouldn't give up, but we should respect the complexity of a problem. And when a politician just says, hey, I think that whoever gets the most votes ought to win. Well, that sounds nice, but we need to recognize that as a meaningless slogan. Um, on the other hand, you, we can't like dismiss that outright. You know, we, we can listen to more specific issues behind that slogan, whether it's voter disenfranchisement or, uh, you know, some, you know, some, some voters having more power over the others. That's all fair game. But it's got to be a deeper discussion than that, because whoever gets the most votes ought to win. Really, it depends on the elect- election system that, uh, that, that we're choosing. Okay, so that's sort of the standard social choice model of the election. Uh, the second model of an election that I want to introduce today is something that I've studied a little bit, but it's a little bit more obscure, and that's called monotone Boolean functions. I know that's a crazy term, but hear me out. So basically, it works like this. Uh, it's it's a decision-making process. So there are actions that a group of people are allowed to take, think voters, or think maybe a Congress. And essentially, there are rules governing which coalitions of people are allowed to make that decision, whether it's passing that law or allocating money or hiring someone if you're on a hiring committee. So it turns out that there are actually uh, exponentially, uh, loosely speaking, exponentially different possible arrangements that can be made uh, with, uh, uh, you know, majority to pass rules being only one. And rarely is a system purely majority to pass, you know, in 
Congress. You need to have a majority of the House of Representatives, a majority of the Senate. Sometimes you need 60% of the Senate. Sometimes, and if the president is not on the board, you need two-thirds of each one. And so um, it turns out if you look at the lawmaking progress in the United States, then the uh, the function for which people you need to be on board, which coalitions actually work to pass that law, is a very complicated function. In fact, the number of different decision functions or voting systems in this case for N people is called the Dedekind's number for N, and that's after Richard Dedekind, who's the German mathematician who studied these in 1897. He was foundational in order theory, which looks at like very basic fundamental questions in this whole space. And so here's something surprising. Uh, the Dedekind number grows very fast. The Dedekind number for two people, two voters only, is actually six. Think about that. There are six different voting arrangements for two people. And I'll tell you how that is. Um, so suppose, let's suppose that you're a child growing up, maybe you're seven years old, you want a chocolate bar. And you have uh, mom and dad, those are your two voters. All right. Can you have that chocolate bar? Well, here are the six, six uh, possible voting systems that uh, you could be living under. One is that mom decides. Two is that dad decides. Three is that you can ask either mom or dad. So all you have to do is get one of your parents to agree and they can open that uh, drawer where the chocolate bar is. Four you need to get both of them to agree. Either of them can veto your, uh, uh, you know, your, your chocolate bar consumption. Basically, there's a drawer, but it's two keys, and they both have to turn their keys at once or something like that. Five. Now we're getting to the more, uh, you know, the, the, the cases that are more degenerate. But five is that, that the drawer is locked. Nobody has access to the chocolate bar. And no matter what coalition you have, uh, you're not getting it. And six, the drawer is open. The parents can't block access to the chocolate bar. That thing is getting eaten no matter what. And so those are the six voting systems for two people. So uh, with three people, there are actually 20 different arrangements like this and so on and so forth. And for N people in generally, there's actually no closed form. It grows bigger and bigger to, to huge numbers, but uh, no mathematician has actually come up with a formula for it, which is pretty interesting. So why the, that sequence kind of has its own name. So one question is that with so many voting systems and how so complicated that they can get, how do you measure the voting power of a single individual in that system? For for example, you could talk about U.S. legislation. You know, how do we score the voting power of a member of the House of Representatives versus a senator versus the president? Or as you know, one example is you know in in the UN. Uh, you know, what's the voting power on the Security Council of uh, a permanent member who can veto anything versus just a plain old member of that council? So, uh, you know, I covered this in episode 72, but one way to do this, which is really the best way to do this, is called the Shapley number. It's actually different from the number of votes you have. Because if you think about it, if I hold 60% of the votes and we vote, I'm always going to get, and we vote and do majority rules, except I hold 60% of the vote. I actually have 100% of the power. I don't have 60% of the power. I have 100% of the power because I'm always going to win. So the the weight of your vote is actually kind of misleading in some instances. So 
Uh, there's something called the Shapley number that sort of gives you an idea of how much voting power you have. I'm not going to get into the formula for it. But e- even though it's the best way to do this, I think distilling all of this down to one number loses a lot of information. For example, uh, in the mom and dad example, it's like they both have to agree or you only have to get one to agree. In both cases, they have 50% of the power, but very different situation. So I covered this in episode 72, and you know it also doesn't take into account uh, the people who are in your voting pool, uh, because that really determines whether you want to be in the voting pool or not. Just It's not just the rules of the game, but it's the other people who live in your constituency, whether it's your congressional district or your household or whatever. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. Uh, so those are the two, the monotone Boolean functions and the Dedekind numbers, and also uh, the, um, the, uh, the, the standard social choice voting model of Condorcet and Arrow, uh, those are the kind of the two mathematical views of voting that I wanted to bring up. And before I get into the next part, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Brilliant. Brilliant is both a site, brilliant.org, and an app that has wonderful online courses in math, science, and logic, a lot of overlap from the topics that I talk about on The Local Maximum. I checked out some of their courses recently, and I think you should check it out too. It's not like other online courses. You're not going to have to sit through long videos and download PDFs. It's highly visual and interactive way to learn concepts in math and probability and science. And I always say this, the most important part of learning a new concept is being able to get a good intuition for it to understand what it means and what's going on. So there is a course that goes along with this episode very, very well, and that's the Mathematics and Paradoxes of Voting. It's part of the Logic course. I'll link to that specifically on my page at localmaxradio.com slash 126 for this episode. It covers Arrow's Impossibility Theorem. It covers Condorcet Paradoxes. If you want to learn more about these fascinating topics, you can give some of it a try for free. But if you want to sign up for full courses, you want to go to brilliant.org slash localmaximum. That will get you 20% off for a limited number of people, but it's a big limited number. So I think you'll get the discount. Go to brilliant.org slash local maximum. Remember, it's called Brilliant. You can take the courses on their website at brilliant.org, but it's also an app as well. So you get it on your phone or tablet. Remember to sign up and go directly to brilliant.org slash local maximum to get the discount or find my link at localmaxradio.com slash 126. All right. So let's talk about the problems with the mathematical descriptions of elections and what they ignore in the real world. So here's what they ignore. First of all, uh, these methods ignore the information gathering phase and the campaigning phase. And what do I mean by that? Uh, Obviously, let's say there are 100 candidates. Obviously, people are not going to rank all 100 candidates. In fact, if there are three candidates, people might pick a favorite, but they might not actually care about ranking the other two. Or... In some cases, there are two candidates, and people aren't sure which one to to pick. Some people are going to be very suggestible. Some people are going to be very set in their ways. And so candidates are going to reposition themselves and advertise in an attempt to win certain people over. Um, And really, the information gathering phase is very important. And uh, most voters don't do 
well, the idea is every voter kind of has their feel of it, and then you get kind of a wisdom of the crowd, but that might not always work. You know, when was the last time you even bothered to write a benefit and drawback list for uh, candidates, specifically for local candidates? Probably, probably never for most of us, even if we voted in those elections. So um, there's also a problem in kind of public choice theory where uh, individual voters are not going to spend enough time getting information about the candidates. And that's why people kind of follow a party and vote party line. But um, that kind of moves the election to the independents, who in some cases are suggestible to advertising and that sort of thing. So that whole aspect of the election is not really covered in uh, the arrow social choice model, uh, because in that model, everybody knows their preferences, which is clearly not the case. Um, then a second issue is that there's the, an issue of the kind of the democratic constituency. Who are you voting with? You know, no one says, no political philosopher, no democratic philosopher says that any random group of people can come together and form a functioning democracy. Uh, there has to be shared interests, uh, and, is it like a debate over how to serve those interests or is it kind of different interests fighting against each other? I think every system has a little bit of both. But um, if you have group constituencies like we do in the Electoral College, like we do in Congress, like most countries do with uh, regard to their, uh, you know, except for countries that do um, pr proportional representation. So there are some countries that do proportional representation, but most countries have group constituencies where they group people into towns and cities and districts. And so that kind of ensures that more issues are covered versus, uh, you know, the candidates just uh, and parties trying to turn out their base, uh, you know, and focus on singularly on certain issues. So it's not just that, you know, it makes different issues covered. It actually makes more issues covered that affect more people. So um, the, these models also don't cover, uh, you know, debates over how easy is it to vote? What's the cost of voting for someone? You know, maybe uh, in certain areas, it's very easy to vote. And maybe certain areas, uh, there it could be voter suppression, or there could be errors, or there could be uh, corruption, or there could be something as simple as a natural disaster occurring in, on election day in that area, causing the vote to go awry. All these things can happen. And so, and the Electoral College has, well, we still have, you know, some of these problems occurring, but uh, you kind of have the, um, if one area has a turnout that is very, uh, that, that's very low, say, for certain, let's say it's low because of a natural disaster or high because of fraud or something like that. It's every state still has the same number of votes in the electoral college. Now, sometimes you have problems where portions of states, uh, you know, are, are, um, suppressed or expanded, uh, incorrectly. Um, but that just says that, okay, we need to move this system to lower and lower levels as we talked about last week in episode 125. Um, also the focus on swing states kind of helps us find problems in our electoral system. It helps us find, you know, if there is corruption or if there are problems in voting, it helps us pinpoint those particular areas uh, where those problems could affect those elections. Because if, you know, if there's one national election, then there's, it's not obvious where to look 
for for problems. And so you kind of have this um, tragedy of the commons situation where every area of the country is sort of equally liable. And so there's no place where where you have the support to kind of raise a uh, a, a lawsuit or, or, or file a complaint or anything like that. And also, finally, I want to focus on the idea that what the models don't cover is that the idea of swing states in the Electoral College is that swing states can change rapidly, as we said last week. Like the swing states this year are some of the swing states next year, um, but they they change from election to election, whereas the population centers do not. You know, New York City has dominated New York state politics since the beginning of time, basically. And it will dominate New York state politics uh, for the rest of my lifetime. That's just the way it is. So if this is a good thing, what are some ways that uh, – if, if the Electoral College is, is a good thing or at least uh, has some good properties, and it's also very difficult to change. You know, It's in our constitution. So what are other ways we can change our electoral system uh, that would uh, – that would – that that might be an improvement. You know, what should we look at? Because you know, there there definitely are problems. I would like us to experiment with Condorcet methods on a small scale because I do see an unfairness with first past the post, and people should be able to find a candidate that fits their interests better. Um, would making the cycles be explicit be a good thing? You know, maybe seeing what those cycles are would illuminate a lot about. Uh, you know, the political stalemate we have, uh, perhaps local electoral colleges would be a good thing, uh, could be population based, but it may be struck down by the Supreme Court. And so I think that um, maybe uh, we should also reform the party primary systems, because look, the way that the Democrat and Republican primary pick their candidates, that is like 90% of the election right there. And so many people are unhappy with that. And that's a lot easier to change than changing the Constitution. So we should definitely, if you're going to look at the Electoral College, definitely look at the way the parties are picking their candidates. Um, and, you know, whether it, it reflects the will of the people in that party or whether it chooses someone who would actually win both of those. You, you want both of those interests to be aligned when you're picking a candidate. It's a very difficult tightrope to walk. But I feel like right now, uh, we end up with candidates that, that no one likes sometimes. Okay, so what are the issues with what do I think would happen if we had a, a national popular vote? I think first of all, it would lead to federal control over the elections right now states run their elections. But if we had a national popular vote, you can't trust the states to run their elections because if they have more turnout or more lopsided turnout, then their vote matters more. So you can't kind of trust individual states not to game the vote and try to, uh, you know, stuff their ballot boxes. So the, um, the regulations on who can vote when would be in federal control, which sounds like a good thing on the surface because you're like, you're going to define, okay, some objective set of rules that uh, everyone can abide by. But I think what would happen is over time, just like those rules wouldn't end up, you know, like a very simple set of rules. I think over time that those rules would uh, look like the tax code where you'd be like, okay, uh, you know, rural areas and urban areas, obviously you can't have a, a polling place every half mile in a, in a, in a rural area. What are the penalties if the, the voting line gets too long? And, uh, you know, where do we try to weed out, you know, how do we verify it and all that? So I, I don't think that the 
regulations there would look very good over time. I think what would end up happening is you'd spend years trying to reform the system. And then in the end, we'd just see the same people win with altered campaign strategies. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but if you think that, well, let's use Donald Trump as an example. Like he won in the Electoral College. He didn't win the popular vote, but he won in the places where they were competing. So could he have won if they were competing in different places? I mean, you know, that, that suggests he, he certainly could have. So, and you'd end up with the same candidates. <laughs> you'd end up in very similar situations, very similar elections. So it's a situation where I think you'd spend so much time trying to reform the system. I think a lot of Democrats want to change the system because I think they'd win more if it were a popular vote. I'm not convinced that's true. And then what happens if you spend 30 years or your whole lifetime trying to change the system, and then the next 30 years, the same sorts of things happen? You know, you're back to square one. So I, I just don't think that's that's worth it. But finally, I have to point out, it's hard for me to decide between these electoral systems because I don't see a lot of hard data uh, comparing them. Like, what, what data would you even look at? Like, you, you'd have to start and ask people, what is the goal of the voting system that you're trying to advocate for, or that you're trying to design? Because I think that um, when people ask for a different voting system, uh, they often don't think about they often say, well, this change is more fair, but what's the goal? What is fairness? And so that's a good question to ask. And if that's if, if you have a certain goal in mind, you know, what data would show that a voting system X would be better than voting system Y? I It's very hard. I, I suspect that if we had such data, it would be easy, man, uh, easy to manipulate to show a certain point of view, just like a lot of economic data is, a lot of political science data, because there's no... Um, there's no, uh, there's no perfect experiments in politics, and even the observational data is kind of skim, slim. So it's very difficult to draw inferences from that. Maybe you could. Um, so we'd have to do kind of a forward-looking experiment where we agree on the metrics beforehand. That that I think is definitely true, rather than cherry-picking stuff that happened in the past. You have to say, okay, I'm going to move to this electoral system, this new one, and I expect X, Y, and Z to happen. And if it doesn't happen, then I know I was wrong. But <laughs> that's not how reform happens, unfortunately. So those are just some thoughts. I know I don't have you know, one whole conclusion on that, but I hope you learned something today. Uh, I'm going to link to a, a Federalist paper by Alexander Hamilton on the Electoral College where he said it's not a perfect system, uh, but it's excellent because it balances the interests of the various states. And so, and, and it was supported by small states like Delaware and Connecticut, which is interesting. Some people say it was only supported by slave states, which it's not the case. If you look at you know who supported the system, uh, it was you know some of the, a lot of the small New England states. So look, electoral college shouldn't be treated as some perfect machine bestowed by the founders, but we have to remind ourselves the purpose it serves, and um, it's a, kind of a really fascinating look on uh, public choice and elections and how to balance the interests in a country and spread it around over different constituencies, which I just find fascinating. This whole social choice, uh, you know, voting, uh, voting system selection is a very fascinating topic. So I'd like to hear what you think. Uh, email me at localmaxradio at gmail.com uh, to tell me about what uh, electoral system you use in your area and uh, what you would like to use. And uh, next week, we're going to 
return to the technology world and the data world. And I'm excited to do that. So have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.